other employees of Anaconda had mixed feelings about the matter. A lot of them felt, oh, Christ, you're going to get us all fired. You are going to close the mill. You always have that threat. So you have to weigh that against an environment that represents all the people. This is what I felt. I felt that this is their river, my river, your river, our river. My God, we cannot let this happen. We have got to start somewhere and start stopping this pollution. That was Jed Eicher reading a few lines from an account of Fred Danback, an early pioneer in the fight against companies polluting the Hudson River. You'll hear more from Danback in a moment. But first, you're listening to Yesteryear, Stories from Home, a series that features firsthand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. This episode features two accounts that center the vitality of the Hudson River. The first comes from Paul Hannock, who lived in Hastings from 1925 to 1987 and was known as one of the river's most prolific swimmers. Despite the smokestacks, factory refuse, and rackety trains, the Hastings Riverfront was a locus of summertime recreation through the 1950s. Almost everyone who grew up in the village swam, fished, or canoed along the waterfront. But... By the late 60s, with the Zinzer Chemical Company in operation, Mr. Hannock's swims became less frolicsome. He noticed, and I'm quoting him, the river was all different colors, purple, yellow, green, and then came the copper shavings from the Anaconda Wire and Cable Company, turning the water, quote, all green on top. Our second account picks up where Hannock leaves off. It's from an interview with Fred Danback, who worked as a janitor for Anaconda for 18 years, eventually serving as union president before his conscience could bear no more. So disturbed at the company's practice of dumping oil, sulfuric acid, and copper shavings into the river, Danback quit his job with a wife and five children and no prospect of other employment and decided to fight. Aligning with New York Congressman Dick Ottinger and the Hudson River Fishermen's Association, what would become today's Riverkeeper, Danback won his suit. And he won big. In 1972, the New York Times reported, quote, There is no doubt that this is the largest reward money ever obtained by a conservation group. Here to offer context for both stories is Dan Shapley, Interim Vice President of Programs and Interim Hudson Riverkeeper. We as humans are drawn to water, and so any place that's got a shoreline and is particularly someplace like the Hudson that is beautiful and nearby where people live, there's been swimming there forever. And there is still today. I think that if you if you try to compare sort of the health of the water for swimming in the 50s and 60s to today, I would say by and large, the water is probably safer today than at that time. You know, we had the Clean Water Act in 1972 and before it, a predecessor law here in New York State that started to do the basic work of, of asking communities to treat their sewage before discharging it. So back in the 50s and 60s, you would have had fewer people living in the valley, but um, much less sewage treatment. People swim everywhere. People are swimming today. They're probably not in the same numbers and it's not as kind of culturally 
as pervasive as it probably was in the 50s and 60s. But it is still very, very much the case that people, any, any place they find a shoreline or a good place to anchor their boat, they're getting in the water and they're enjoying it as they should be. Again, you know, people, we love water. We're drawn to water and, and there's no reason we shouldn't be jumping in that water. You have to be careful about tides and currents and boat traffic as well as water quality in a river like the Hudson. But it can be a wonderful experience. And now here is Paul Hannock's account an oral history excerpted from interviews by Judy Holzer and Marion Martin, read by Nick Wyman. In 1925, when I was 13, I came to Hastings to spend the summer with my oldest sister, Mary. I used to go down to the river between the Tower Ridge Yacht Club and Willow Point at the north end of the Hastings waterfront. That's where all the kids from the neighborhood swam, although some of the older boys used to jump off the public dock by Anaconda. I remember how much I liked watching all the dayliners go up the river and the barges that used to come down from Stony Point with trap rock. Tugs would pull about 10, 15 barges at a time, like a, like a big trailer. The older kids liked to swim out and hook onto the last barge. People in canoes did that too when they were going against the tide. And uh, in 1926, my family moved, and after that I swam closer to where we lived, closer to Yonkers. In those days, there was a footbridge over the uh, railroad tracks, just this side of the Yonker City Line and the Palisade Boat Club. Later, the railroad knocked the bridge down. But while it was there, everybody from Hastings swam there. We called it the home, probably because it was used by the children at the orphans' home. And some days, you know, there were as many as 200 people swimming down there. In the 1920s and 30s, everybody had kayaks or canoes. I used to like to see the guys from the Palisade Boat Club go out in the river in the evening after dinner. And in 1937, I bought a big canoe with my brother. We would canoe down to the Spiten Dival Bridge. You had to watch the current there because it could tip over your canoe. Once, I got a young kid to help me paddle the canoe from Greystone up to Terrytown, where the bridge is. Then I jumped in the water and swam across and back while he followed me in the canoe. It's three and an eighth miles across the river at that point. I also swam across the river from Hastings many times, but you know, lots of people did that. There were lots of fish in the river in the 1920s and 30s. Tommy cods, eels, and crabs. I was never much of a fisherman, but I crabbed a lot. When I worked up in Irvington at Lord and Burnham on the waterfront in the early 1930s, we used to eat lunch outside on the dock. And another kid, Harold Matthews, worked there with me. He had four crab nets, and inside 45 minutes, he would catch a 50-gallon barrel full of crabs. The eels were huge in those days. I mean, as big as black snakes, six, eight feet long. When the dayliners went by, the waves used to wash eels up on the rocks. I love eels. They're my favorite fish. We used to skin them, cut them into four-inch lengths, and drop them in oil like French-fried potatoes. I love the river, and I was always down there. My mother used to make lunch on Sunday at 12 o'clock regular, and I'd be down at the river at 1 and stay until dark. A friend and I used to sit there, leaning against the utility poles, talking and enjoying the river and the Palisades. In those days, the area between Warburton Avenue and the river didn't look the way it does now. I mean, there were apple, mulberry, and crabapple trees. They grew from seeds the birds had dropped, in the, and lots of wild raspberries. And the place wasn't all overgrown the way it is now. I mean, you know, it was nice down there. A lot of people used canoes to go camping along the river. The water that came down the hill near the Graham home was clean then. We all used to drink that water. Later, you couldn't because the village started dumping near there. 
When Zinzer Chemical Company was operating on the waterfront, the river was all different colors. Purple, yellow, green. It didn't bother us because the tide used to take it out. But when we'd see the copper coming down from the anaconda, you know, green on top, we used to come out of the water. I didn't like that copper. I've lived here for 63 years as of June 1988, and I was always on the river. I worked on the river at Lorne Burnham anaconda on the fisher body and i've swum the river every year except for last year when penn central is doing construction work near where i swim my wife doesn't want me to go down there and my daughters gave me a 50 dollars check right there to take out a pool pass that's where they want me to swim but i like the river because that water is nice you know my body is used to that water it's not too warm and it's not too cold in recent years i'd swim down with the current as far as the palisade boat club and then walk back because you can't swim against the current. I am the only one around who goes down to the river now. People don't appreciate it. You know, everybody's afraid of pollution. I mean, of course, when I come home, you know, I take a bath. That was Nick Wyman reading Paul Hannock's account of swimming in the Hudson. Before we turn to Hudson River advocate Fred Danback's account, here is Dan Shapley again to offer context. Fred Danbeck's story is just extraordinary. I love in hearing his words how he's talking about just, I can't stand for this. I'm seeing this happen and I can't stand for this pollution. I have to do everything I can to stop it. And I think that spirit is what drives Riverkeeper staff today. It's what drives the members, um, all of the, and, and just the range of people who work to improve the health of the environment often that just not being able to stand for it and not being satisfied with the conditions that you that you see um, for yourself in your own experience. I think that spirit um, is very important to what we do today and that is a through line. Really that origin moment, you know, dusting off that, that law that outlawed the dumping into navigable water like the Hudson, finding it, putting it to use, getting the bounty Um, that came from it, because at that time, the the government got half of the penalty that any polluter was fined, and the person bringing the case got the other half. So that's how the Hudson River Fishermen's Association, even before the Clean Water Act, started to clean up these pollution sources. So it's really, you know, it's a powerful story also of what an individual can do and what the creative effort of a group can do to use the laws and to empower ourselves to to make the world better. If you look at ways that we use the river, there are a lot of reasons for hope and a lot of reasons for um, looking at the success of the last 50 years and being really excited about what it means for what we can do to tackle any environmental problem. Because The river, as we found it 50 or so years ago, it was a real mess and it wasn't a place that was safe for swimming. It wasn't a place that was seen as an asset for communities. It wasn't the same kind of uh, celebrated thing that it is today. So even while we have these continual challenges with legacy contaminants and new contaminants and everything else, we know that we can solve these things if we work together and if we're creative and we put our minds to it. And people rally around water generally and the Hudson particularly, uh, we love it. And we, we, we get why it matters. It's, it's something that, that people don't need to be convinced of. They often need to be helped to see 
what the issues are, but the basic idea is not hard for people to embrace, that clean water matters. It matters to our health, matters to the health of the living world, humans included. And now, here is Jed Eicher reading from Fred Danback, Crusader Against Pollution, based on an interview conducted by Mary Allison. I guess the best thing to say about myself is that I have an obsession against pollution. I was born and raised in Yonkers, near the wharf along the river. The riverfront was my playground. I really loved it so much that as I got older and got married, I was concerned about my sons having the same use of the river as I had. It was very disheartening to see industry taking away every available part of the river. My argument is, let's try to preserve some of this for the public. There should be two separate environments. One should be the city proper, where people work for a living, and the second, the river, should be a place where they could go to relax and enjoy themselves. I worked in Anaconda on the Hastings waterfront for 18 years. I started in December 1950, and I left in May of 1969. When I quit the job, I was the union president. Prior to that, I had all sorts of jobs in Anaconda running different types of machines. What was very disturbing to me was the pollution. I had always been friendly with the shad fishermen over the years because I was an officer in the U.S. Volunteer Lifesaving Corps, a rescue unit that operates on the river to this day. It disturbed me greatly when I saw shad fishermen lose their whole week's catch because the fish were saturated with oil from the river or because other chemicals were embedded in the fish so badly that the markets refused to accept them. I saw that pollution was coming from Anaconda. Underneath the docks, there were large amounts of oil leaching into the Hudson. It kept going into the river, and I called the Coast Guard. The company got very mad at me, but it couldn't do a heck of a lot because I was right. I wasn't lying. All I wanted at that point was to have them stop polluting. Instead, they bawled me out and told me they were not paying me to look for pollution, but I kept after them. It got so bad, it actually became funny. I was so involved with the Coast Guard that Anaconda had to drill through the floors to see where the oil was. It was coming out all over the place, from the North and South Mills, the whole Anaconda plant. What happened was that they had a supply tank that was leaking 1,000 gallons of oil a day. They weren't even aware of this. They just kept filling up that storage tank and assumed everything was fine. They had to drill holes through the floors in different parts of the plant and put in huge 500-gallon tanks. All the tanks were producing oil, and it became funny because the guys in the mill came along with a can of paint and painted Danback's oil well, number one, number two, number three, number four, etc. People would say to me, Fred, how are your wells? The company was fuming. It had to do this because of my complaints. I think they were afraid to threaten me because I was president of the union. In 1970, a water purification plant was being built in South Yonkers, and one of the life-saving stations was located there. To expand the area for the plant, they told our life-saving corps that we had to move our station to North Yonkers. We were moving trucks and materials when, lo and behold, we came across a piece of paper, an ordinary piece of writing paper, and it said, The Refuse Act, 1888. I read it and said, My God! Nothing is allowed to be dumped into the river other than storm drainage and water. Anything else would be a violation of a federal law. <laughs> I figured there must have been about 5,000 amendments killing that law. Otherwise, why do we have so much pollution? So I wrote to a government office and asked what amendments had been made. 
I had the shock of my life when they replied, None. I couldn't believe it was still a law, but it was. I went to see New York Congressman Dick Ottinger and told him, I want to find Sue, Anaconda Wire and Cable Company for polluting the river. He asked, on what grounds? So I showed him the 1888 Refuse Act. He said, this is fantastic. But Fred, you're talking about a giant company, a powerful company. You can't really expect to win this. I asked him to consider my complaint and left. Tom Lyman, who worked with me in Anaconda, suggested that I get in touch with the Hudson River Fishermen's Association. I made a phone call and joined them. Little known to me at the time, Congressman Ottinger was discussing a pollution problem with them concerning Penn Central Railroad. It was decided to put out a catch-a-polluter card to let people know they could bag a polluter and be rewarded under the Refuse Act for doing so. The pollution case against Penn Central was won, and the railroad was fined $9,500. Encouraged by that, the Hudson River Fishermen's Association and I then took on Anaconda. To be able to take Anaconda to court, I could not be working for them. Even though I was married and had five children, I quit. I was so aggravated and had to do something about it. I did not even have a job to go to. I was obsessed. Pollution bothers me. And it was bothering me because there was more than oil that Anaconda was putting into the river. There was sulfuric acid. And the worst pollution was not even the oil. It was the copper. The copper came from wire rods which were kind of thick. To make different sized wires, the rods were drawn down through dyes and in the process, copper would flake off. That would mix in with the water and dyes and go right out into the river. That is deadly to marine life, very deadly. The whole bottom of the river was saturated with it. The company said, you are talking about a minute amount of copper. So, we took cheesecloth nets and put them on the outflowing pipes that were entering the river and we collected the copper and proved it was no minimal amount. It was tremendous. The pipes were out at the end of the bulkheads. You couldn't see some of them. However, the copper flowing into the river was very visible. We took a canoe under the bulkhead to find the pipes. I had a guy draw up schematics showing where all the pipes were. I knew where everything was being discharged. The company didn't know that I knew, but I did. One time, a television reporter accompanied me inspecting the pipes and then wrote a story about the pollution. Following this publicity, the company put in what they called capacity tanks to filter out the copper dust filings. Oddly enough, they profited from that. The copper that they were able to save was sold to paint companies at a high price. Although this helped, our inspections still showed signs of copper going into the river. When we went to court, we had pictures that proved and verified everything. Anaconda was found guilty of every charge. It was in the papers and on television. We had quite a court case. I received some very nice letters from all different kinds of people. And this was one thing that encouraged me. When I left Anaconda, Bob Plummer, who became president of the union when I stepped down, wrote to me. Congratulations. Keep up the good work. Other employees of Anaconda had mixed feelings about the matter. A lot of them felt, oh, Christ, you're going to get us all fired. You are going to close the mill. You always have that threat. So you have to weigh that against an environment that represents all the people. This is what I felt. I felt that this is their river, my river, your river, our river. My God, we cannot let this happen. We have got to start somewhere and start stopping this pollution. 
I got into a few arguments with some of the employees who said, Fred, you know, we have got to work here. But nobody was ever laid off over it. Anaconda stopped the pollution. The copper, oil, and the acid. I kept going back up there and checking to make sure they did. I haunted them. I'd go out into a boat and check their pipes. The guards tried to chase me a few times, but I just laughed at them. One time, they threatened to sink the boat I was in. I told them, you do it. You're going to end up in court with the company. I testified before a grand jury in January 1972, and the case continued for a month or so. It went very fast. The Anaconda Wire and Cable Company was found guilty on 60 counts of pollution and fined $200,000. The company paid the fine. It did not even seem to bother them. You just listened to Jed Eicher reading from Fred Danback, Crusader Against Pollution, based on an interview conducted by Mary Allison. Yesteryear Stories from Home is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Govier and featuring archives from the Hastings Historical Society. From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home. <laughs>